Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for the opportunity to open your word. We pray that as we do this, this morning, that you will find us eager to be the people that you have called us to be in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. I love Snickers candy bars. Amen, brother. Let me just put this rumor to rest right now. It's possible that after our last uh, opportunity to serve on All Hallows Eve on the front lawn, it's possible that when it was all over and the leftover candy was collected, it's possible that I went through all that leftover candy, found every single Snickers bar, and squirreled it away, and over the course of a year consumed each and every one of them. It's possible. I love Snickers. I love iced tea. I love purple cow ice cream. Have I shared with you purple cow ice cream before? Yeah. Black raspberry ice cream with chocolate chips and white chocolate chips in it. It's delicious. You can't get it anywhere around here in Kansas. It's a statewide failure. But nonetheless, I love purple cow ice cream. I love Chick-fil-A. I might have mentioned that once or twice along the way. I love summertime. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. It's not true that I love my grandkids more than my kids, although there are moments. (laughs) I love my brilliant and beautiful wife. But the troubling thing about all those statements is this, right? We use the same word, love, to describe vastly different levels of emotion and commitment. For example, Snickers, and my wife. No, just kidding. (laughs) So the problem is that English is sometimes inadequate to capture the range of meanings of some important Bible words. So, we're going to get a little technical this morning. And if you will stay awake during this technical time, I'm going to let you know how you can get $15 million from First Congregational Church. $15 million, if you pay attention. There are a couple of troublesome words in this little letter of 1 John that we've been looking at along the way. One of those words is love, that four-letter word in John's writings. Another word in John's writing is the word world. These words have ranges of meanings, and and when they overlap, sometimes... These, these ranges are called uh, semantic fields. So Jeff, put that slide up, would you? So here are two words that are predominantly used in the Bible to describe love. The word on your left, is it your left? Yes, agapao. You've probably heard this before, agape love. This is, this is love that uh, is... Um, is best described as an act of the will. It's a deliberate choice to act in the best interests of somebody else. Not that there's not any emotional content to it, because there is, but the primary driver is seeking and serving the best interests of somebody else. The other word in the New Testament is this word, phileo. It's usually thought of as kind of tender affection. Sometimes it's thought of as uh, having more emotional content based on some kind of compassionate association. 
So though these words have different emphases sometimes, in Scripture we can't always tease those differences apart. Or in some cases, make anything of them. So if you see the overlap on the screen, you see where those two ovals overlap. This is a range of meaning that these words share in common within their own semantic fields, their own range or, 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 or categories of meaning. Both sets of words are used to describe the total range of loving relationships between people, between people and God, and within and among the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sometimes the words are used to describe other objects of love. Now, here's the thing. The Apostle John, the author of the letter that we've been looking at, has this annoying habit of using these words sometimes interchangeably. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, he talks about the disciple that Jesus loves. And when he says that the disciple that Jesus loves, the word he uses there is agapaho. But then later on in the Gospel of John, uh, excuse me, earlier on in the Gospel of John, he says the Father loves Jesus. The Father loves his Son. The word he uses there is not agapao, which is the one we might expect. It's the other one, phileo. Or maybe you've heard this before about Apostle John at the end of his Gospel in chapter 21. You remember this story, I hope, right? We know that Peter... When Jesus was caught and uh, taken for trial, Peter denied him how many times? Three. Three times. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 21, Jesus and Peter are having this little tete-a-tete on the beach. And, uh, and uh, Jesus challenges Peter three times by saying, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Well, in the original language of the Bible, those first two questions, do you love me, are uses of the word agapaho. The third instance when Jesus asks Peter, do you love me, it's the other word. Phileo, thanks very much. So sometimes people have taken this to mean, oh, well, Peter couldn't quite muster that self-sacrificial other person's best interest love for Jesus, so Jesus kind of stooped to Peter's level and talked about more kind of emotional, brotherly love content kind of thing. Mm. Probably not. At least not on the basis of this use of the word love alone. Even the Apostle Paul gets into the act In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we should love God. When he says that, he uses the word phileo. Troublesome word number one, love. There's another potentially troublesome word in today's passage that we're going to talk about in a minute. The other word is cosmos. Cosmos means world. Sometimes, like in John chapter 3, verse 16, it's translated people or the created order. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But sometimes, like in the passage we're going to look at today, this very same author, John, talks about the world as all of those systems, all of those powers that are organized contrary to the plans and heart of God. 
In fact, the New English Bible translates this word this way. In today's passage, he describes uh, the world as the godless world, just to underscore that disconnect. So there's two lessons that I'd like us to take away from this. One, we don't base our theology or interpretation on the basis of the definition of one word. Second lesson, context helps us decide what words mean in a particular passage. I think I've shared with you before, there are three rules, three primary rules of Bible interpretation. Context, context, and context. Words mean something in sentences, and sentences mean something in paragraphs, and paragraphs mean something in a larger context in which they are found. So all of that is to say that the only word John uses for love in today's passage is agapao. And he uses it in a startling way. So, all right, did you stay awake? Yeah? So you, you want to know how to get the $15 million from First Congregational Church, right? Right? Here's how you get it. You give us $20 million, and we'll give you $15 million back. That works out. Yeah. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Here's John. He says, do not love the world, do not settle your affection on the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So remember that word agapao is kind of the summary word for love. It carries with it settled purpose to pursue the best interests of the object of that love. And it usually means selflessness. It's not void of emotional content because the emotional content is there. But the love here is a choosing to serve God. So... John gives us a baseline admonition in this passage. He says, don't agapao the world. Don't settle your affection and your desires to serve on the world. The world here in the opposition to God's purposes sense of the world. Don't settle your affection on that. And you say, well, wait a minute, John. You've got the wrong guy or the wrong gal. I don't determine to love the world. I'm not set out to, to, to purpose my uh, endeavors to focus on the worldly system, the structures of society around me. No, I'm not going to focus my attention on the things that are contrary to the will of God. Really? Are we willing to take the calendar and checkbook tests about that? Those measures of where we actually put our actual money and where we actually spend our actual time, those are the best measures ever of what our sense of priorities really is, contrary to sometimes what we might say they are. So John says, don't love the world here. Remember, the system's in opposition to God. Don't love those things. And he gives us two reasons in this passage. The first reason is this that love for God and love for the world are mutually incompatible ideas. A life that's trying to be lived in in a focused attention on loving God is not a life that can simultaneously be lived in focused attention on pursuit of things in opposition to God. It can't work. We are 
one body with one spirit and one mind. And we cannot go through life consistently being divided in our allegiance. If we are caught up in the outlook and pursuits of the world which rejects, rejects Christ, that in it of itself, John says, is evidence that our love for the Father is less than it should be. And here in this passage, John gives us some details of what that might look like, in case we're wondering. Verse 16, lust of the flesh. Sometimes also translated cravings. Desires that are warped by our fallen nature and to which the world caters. Now, Pastor Laura and I subscribe to Amazon Prime. And because we do that, we have access to Prime Video. Now, most of the shows you see on Prime Video are without commercials. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. (laughs) But some of those channels, even though we're paying to have access to them, some of those channels still have commercials. And I still can't get my brain around this, that we're paying people to have them sell us stuff. It just seems a little weird to me, but nonetheless, they're there. Those, but if, you know, you've watched commercials, right? What are they trying to do? They're trying to entice you into buying something, whatever the something is. And I don't know if you've noticed this pattern along the way. I've picked up on this because I'm, you know, I'm slow, but I get there eventually. That it doesn't really matter often what the end product is. I mean, it can be toothpicks or beach balls or trips to Acapulco. Whatever the end object is, somehow, some way, they often weave kind of a sexual element into the commercial to entice your attention in. For toothpicks. I know it doesn't make sense, but yet somebody somewhere must have figured out that if they do that consistently, some of us are going to click the buy button on the website. Now, lust of the flesh, these cravings. And then coupled with a thing called here in John, uh, this little letter, lust of the eyes. Because of this tendency to be captivated by what we see and what we love and what we endure. I don't know if you know this name. You probably do Paul Harvey. You know Paul Harvey, right? The radio personality. You've heard of radios, right? Back from the last century. You know all about those radios. You've read about them in your history books, no doubt. Radios, yeah. He told this story. He told this story of how, to, how an Eskimo kills a wolf. And it's a little grisly, but hang in there. First, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Then the hunter takes his knife and sticks it in the ground with the blade facing upwards. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he starts licking it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. But now he's in a fever of desire. He's licking harder and harder, licking the blade in the Arctic night so great becomes his cravings for the blood that the wolf doesn't notice the moment when it switches from 
just licking the blood to slicing his tongue on the knife and tasting his own blood. Doesn't realize that's happened. The next morning, the hunter comes by and picks up the dead body of the wolf next to the exposed blade that has drawn him in. Cravings of the flesh. Lust of the eye. The wolf's carnivorous appetite just craves more and more and more. Well, we're not wolves. We're smarter than them. We'd never be drawn in by something that's catering to our lusts and our cravings. Would we? No, that would never happen. Snickers candy bars. (laughs) Ever. It's only God's grace that can keep us from the fate of this wolf-like appetite. See, what this is, is an appetite for beauty that's divorced from the love of goodness. C.S. Lewis talked about this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, Lewis says. And then in this passage, John talks about the pride of life. The New American Standard Bible translates this, the boastful pride of life. Eugene Peterson's translation, the message calls this, wanting to appear important, big stuff, I'm hot stuff. You all know it. John here's talking about the braggart who tries to impress everyone with his hot stuff. Arrogance related to external things. These can even be religious things. I was at a meeting once, uh, pastors in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and it was... uh, local association of churches of a like-minded denomination. And we were, uh, you know, just chatting and uh, drinking iced tea and wondering when we could get done so we could go to Chick-fil-A. Um, and so we're there, and uh, we're, you know, we're just a bunch of, bunch of folks just doing the pastor thing and hanging out. And then in, in the room walks this guy who is also a pastor in the same town. But this guy was a little bit full of, well, himself. And he didn't know us. So he walks over to us and he starts chatting. And he says, well, who are you? And what church are you at? And who are you? And what church are you at? And who are you? And what church are you at? And there were three of us kind of standing there talking to this guy, actually listening to him talk to us. And he realized we were nobodies from nowhere. He moved on to the next group until he could find somebodies from somewhere to impress those somebodies from somewhere that he was a really important guy from a really important place. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. 
He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So we shouldn't love the world because it's incompatible with loving God, but also the present world and all the stuff that's in it, they're fading away. They are fading commodities. In verse 17, John says this, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Everything we see, everything we touch, everything we buy, everything we long for that is outside the goodness and graciousness of God is running out of time. Online looking at cars the other day, I found a 2021 Ferrari, La Ferrari Aperta. $2.2 million. I mean, really? $2.2 million for a car? But nonetheless. What does that car, what does the $2.2 million car have in common with a bowl of cottage cheese? They both have an expiration date. Eventually, it's all going to fade away. Eventually, the car, as beautiful as it is, although it had one of those doors that kind of opened up and out to the side, which I don't quite understand, because wouldn't you hit yourself in the chin every time you tried it? Anyway. If we put our trust in stuff, we will be disappointed. Yet even churched folks are often split personalities in this area. The magazine Christian Century had a poll a couple years ago. Listen to these numbers. 89% of those polled agreed that our society is too materialistic. But 84% also said, I wish I had more money. 71% of those people polled believe that being greedy is a sin against God. Yet 76% of those polled said, having money makes me have a good feeling about myself. 71% of those polled said, society could be improved if people placed less emphasis on money. At the same time, 80% admired those who make a lot of money by working hard. Since this poll is taken, I'm convinced the numbers have probably gotten even more contradictory. It's like this split personality thing occupies us and, and grips us, and we, we, we just don't get it. There's a horse named Lucky 44. A man named Joe was a very superstitious gambler who found deep meaning in numbers. He was born on April 4th, was 44 years old, had four children, and lived at 444 West 4th Street. During the past four years, he had earned $44,000 a year as an administrator for a pizza chain. On his 44th birthday, he went to the dog track and was surprised to find a dog named Lucky 44 was running in the fourth race. Four minutes before the fourth race began, he went to the fourth window and plunked down $4,000 on number four. Sure enough, the dog finished fourth. (laughs) It boils down to this. What have we placed our purposeful, tender affection on? God? Our neighbors? People who need Christ? Brothers and sisters in Christ? Or all those other things that the world, in the 
uh, arrayed, powers arrayed against God's sense of the use of the word world, all those other things that the world offers to us as objects of affection, and not just affection, man, but if we don't watch out closely, worship our jobs, our schools, our relationships, sex, TV, music, image, houses, Facebook, social, other social media. I know, guys, Facebook is so last century. I understand. I'm with you. I hear you. John says we need to wake up. We need to pursue a different tack in 2021 and going forward. We cannot have the kind of affection for transient things that God has built us to place on him and his purposes. That's real life in a real Jesus. And it means loving God instead of these other counterfeit objects of affection. So here's what I want you to do. However you keep track of your time, whether it's an app on the phone or a paper calendar that you write on with a pen, however you keep track of it. And however you keep track of your money, entries in a checkbook, online banking app, doesn't matter. Just take a few minutes this afternoon. Look those things over. Take the checkbook and calendar test and see if you can discern from those two tests what your real objects of affection are. Play with me.